Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. One of the most fascinating places that I find in the city of New Haven, I'm sitting in the city of New Haven right now, and I'm actually pre-recording this show, and when I'm done, I might actually go over there. I might go over to the Yale Art Gallery, to the Dura Europas Room, which is this just amazing representation of a kind of a crossroads city or town, uh, sort of maybe mid-Roman Empire. It'll all get explained to you later. Anyway, I love it. Uh, and I learned a lot from visiting it. I go there a lot. I learned about Palmyran culture so that when I discovered that ISIS was despoiling Palmyran culture, I right away understood a little bit about what that meant. But one of the things that I haven't thought that much about is what all those antiquities were originally when they weren't antiquities, how they got to Yale, and whether anybody wants them back, whether maybe New Haven's a better place for them, considering what ISIS is doing these days. All these are very, very pertinent and pressing questions, and they are very much what we will be talking about today. We're talking about the status of antiquities um, and, and the notion of repatriation, uh, and we've got terrific guests. This is all the brainchild of our uh, wonderful intern, Carmen Baskoff, who came up with this idea. And so um, as we go along, you'll be meeting different people who have different positions uh, on the continuum of what we're talking about right now. But let me begin by introducing a, a few people from the, for the first segment here. We'll be talking to uh, Leila Aminadole, uh, who is an art and cultural heritage attorney and professor of art and cultural heritage law at Fordham University and professor of art crime law at NYU. And Amr Al-Azam, a associate professor of Middle East history at Shawnee State University in Ohio and the former director of scientific and conservation laboratories at the Department of Antiquities and Museums in Syria. We're going to begin uh, with these two guests because we want to begin with something that you've seen in the news. Uh, this summer, U.S. attorneys in New York's Eastern District filed a civil action against Kraft's giant Hobby Lobby that led to a $3 million fine imposed on Hobby Lobby by the Justice Department for smuggling Iraqi artifacts into America. Uh, so, Layla, first of all, welcome to both of you, Layla and Amr. Uh, and, uh, Layla, I'm going to ask you to maybe flesh out our understanding uh, of this case. Uh, first of all, what was what did Hobby Lobby even want with Iraqi artifacts and antiquities in the first place? Well, the owner of Hobby Lobby is a major collector of antiquities and particularly objects that are from the biblical era. And Hobby Lobby will be opening a museum down in Washington, D.C., expected to open in November, and that will be the Museum of the Bible. So I think that one of the motivations behind the purchase of these objects is its connection to the retelling of biblical history or, you know, telling the story of biblical times through the lens of Hobby Lobby's agenda. 
Right. Well, no, I mean, I could decide uh, tomorrow that I was going to open up my own museum uh, that involves some kind of artifacts. And I suppose with my vast wealth, I could begin buying them one way or another or getting them. But I'm also assuming there actually are codes that I would need to follow, federal laws that I would need to follow, international laws I would need to follow, and other kinds of due diligence. I mean, uh, you can't just sort of decide one day you're going to be uh, a collector, even for public exhibition of antiquities, without knowing stuff. Am I right? Yes, it's true. Uh, it's illegal for anyone to buy objects that are looted. Uh, collectors should be doing their due diligence. They should be following some standards when acquiring objects. However, those standards aren't necessarily very clear. It's, it's hard sometimes for collectors to determine where objects actually do come from, and that's one of the challenges with antiquities. Antiquities, at least looted antiquities, are found from the ground without any history, without any provenance, which is an ownership history. So when there are objects with unknown backgrounds, it's really hard to determine where the objects have come from, if they've been exported properly, imported properly, whether they, there are permissions to remove those, uh, those objects from their country of origin. So there are laws that regulate antiquities. However, the antiquities market is full of challenges because it's hard to determine where objects come from, um, when they were excavated, if they were excavated properly. So there are pitfalls for collectors, uh, and some attorneys do, and me included, uh, we do advise collectors on how to appropriately research objects before purchasing them, but unfortunately some collectors don't follow those guidelines. What were these antiquities coming out of Iraq? What, what did the um, head of Hobby Lobby buy? Um, he bought thousands of objects, cuneiform tablets, uh, mostly smaller objects, more, I would say more minor and common objects. So he wasn't bringing in multi-million dollar sarcophagi, valuable bronzes and statuary, but rather objects that were somewhat common. And when you have common objects, they're harder to trace. So that is one way that it was made easier for the collectors at Hobby Lobby to kind of skirt the law and import things that were looted. So uh, Amr al-Azam, let's talk a little bit about this. Um, this. Some of this stuff is traceable to ISIS, but the illegal antiquities market, market coming out of Iraq uh, is much older than that, right? Yes, and, and, and in fact, we have to say that the the, the specific uh, collection that Hobby Lobby or uh, group of artifacts that Hobby Lobby did acquire predates ISIS. So ISIS is not really uh, an issue here. However, they were most likely, because we know they came from Iraq, they were most likely part of the looting events that occurred right after the uh, invasion of Iraq by uh, the, the U.S., and uh, we know that uh, various groups, including al-Qaeda, who were involved in a very uh, bloody insurgency against us and against other Iraqis, um, were benefiting uh, from this looting. So it is possible that some of those objects, as they were acquired, may have also somehow uh, allowed funds that were paid to eventually filter down to uh, groups like al-Qaeda. And, and, and the connection between terrorist, terrorism, terrorist organizations in the Middle East, particularly in areas that are rich in cultural heritage, and looting is very well, well established now. There's also, I mean, just a basic supply and demand cycle, right? There's, there has to be demand for these things. Maybe you can say something about right. that. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, look, this is a supply and demand issue. As long as there is a demand for it, and the primary uh, demand comes from the West, it comes from not exclusively a Western demand, but we are here in the West, in Europe and in the United States, we, we are the, the, the primary uh, demand uh, for these objects. And so as long as this demand exists here in Europe and, and in the United States, there are going to be people who are willing to go out and, and, and loot the, these, these objects to, to sell and to profit. And in fact, we know from experience uh, on the ground that if something happens and for some reason prices go down or, or there's a glut in the market, uh, as we saw, for example, in, uh, at certain event, at, uh, times in 2014 with stuff coming out of Syria and 2015, the looters stop looting and they turn and find other things to do. They find other ways to make their living. And in direct conversations with them, they'll say, oh, yeah, they, the, the prices are too low. It's not worth us doing this. And they'll come back to it once the, the demand picks up again or once the supply, let's say, drops to a point where the prices uh, are pushed up. So there is very much a, a supply and demand uh, relationship and also availability. And, you know, the role of ISIS in this is really complicated because ISIS kind of does two things. One of them is they finance some of their activities through this. And we'll be talking more about this, I think, in the second segment. But when they're not doing that, the other thing they're doing is this kind of destabilizing cleansing of the past, right? The, the, uh, the other thing they do is destroy right. antiquities. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly they do. Look, they do destroy antiquities and they have, you know, uh, very uh, – highly prominent examples where they've gone and, and they've videoed themselves going into uh, the Mosul Museum or to sites like Nineveh and Palmyra, and, it, and it's all very carefully crafted, and they've destroyed these very important sites. However, you, we have to put these into the context of what cultural heritage and artifacts and antiquities mean to ISIS. It is a resource to be exploited, and you lose what you can sell, but then you also destroy for propaganda purposes, what you cannot. ISIS is very aware of how connected we are, as in the rest of the world, and, and how easy we are to shock. So uh, as part of this uh, process of demonstrating their ability to act with impunity and the impotence of ourselves and the rest of the world to stop them, you know, they will commit these atrocities, and these atrocities are not just limited to destroying uh, cultural heritage. They also include putting people in cages and burning them or beheading them in front of the camera. And this is all highly staged and, 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 and very carefully crafted in these uh, videos with music in the background. This is part of a propaganda campaign. And we respond, we react to this propaganda by publishing it, by talking about it, by uh, going on, on, the, on the media. And they monitor this. And we know from their own Twitter chatter um, that they do regularly you know, when they do commit an atrocity, they then follow the Twitter and then communicate amongst each other to see how effective such an atrocity was. So really, this kind of destruction that we see, that we most write about, um, is specific to their propaganda purpose. And that is very different from their other types of destruction, as when they destroy a Sufi shrine or a Shiite place of worship where other Muslims or other may go to worship, that's the cleansing part. That's different again, and we have to differentiate between these different types of destruction. Right. Um, oh boy, there's a lot more I would like to ask about this, but in the interest of time, I'm going to swing back to uh, Layla. Um, Layla, I want to also just talk about what kind of measures, what kind of apparatus we have 
to enforce these kinds of things. Uh, and I'm going to have you do it stateside and and then maybe also have Amr talk a little bit about what goes on in the Middle East. But do, do we have the kind of detection and prosecution apparatus that we would need here stateside in order to catch people doing this and, and properly punish them? There are means to stop this kind of behavior, and there are means of punishing people who acquire looted objects. The difficulty is that this is a a huge problem, and there are many collectors in the U.S. and around the world who are purchasing these objects, and it's hard to detect when something is a looted object or a legitimate object, unlike items that are per se illegal, like cocaine or arms. Antiquities you can't tell if they're looted or they have been legitimately exported. And people who are in the business of collecting looted objects will also forge paperwork. They'll forge export documents, um, certificates from ministries of culture, and other type of paperwork, provenance documents, documents that show that these objects were out of the ground prior to a, a cutoff date or prior to the passage of a patrimony law. So it is difficult to detect which of these objects are looted and which have been licitly excavated and placed on the market. So there's that challenge that that faces law enforcement. Also, we're not putting a lot of resources from law enforcement to monitor the antiquities market. There are other crimes that people feel are more important to stop, such as the drug trade, um, you know, violent crimes and crimes of those manners. So it's one of the difficulties that we don't necessarily put a lot of resources towards stopping the trafficking of looted antiquities. We do have tools to fight in this. There are national laws like the National Stolen Property Act. Uh, There are civil forfeiture means. There are different mechanisms that we can use to prosecute, whether criminally or civilly, uh, people who are dealing in looted antiquities. But it's really hard just to actually form the basis of some of those cases, partly because it's hard to determine where objects are coming from. Uh, It's hard to prove that people exporting and importing these objects necessarily knew that they were looted. So there are challenges that come along with a legal case involving antiquities. So, uh, Amr, the other way that you can deal with it is at point of origin. And uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about how traceable liquid is being used in in Syria. I mean, uh, Leila is very correct to say that one of the biggest challenges on this side of the, the water, if you will, is, is to determine where things come from. And so in order to help us in this fight, recently there's been a new uh, instrument or tool, if you will, in our arsenal, and this is something called smart water. Smart water is this uh, uh, liquid polymer. It's clear, and it contains, it, it uses, it relies on nanotechnology. It's inorganic, so you can't lyse it or, or, or destroy it like you can with genetic fingerprinting. But in effect, it acts as a, a genetic fingerprint. It provides a unique signature once it's applied to an object or item. And what we found, in fact, at, at our university here in Shawnee State, as well as in Reading, working in conjunction with the company that manufactures smart water, we've been testing it on a number of different and material substrates, and we found it to be extremely uh, safe. Where we've run uh, standard sort of uh, audit tests and enhanced audit tests on it, and now what we've started to do is spray items and objects wherever we come across them back in Syria, in our case. And I believe that this will soon be also applied 
in uh, Iraq and possibly even to places like Libya, where we have a serious problem with looting and that connection with terrorism as well. And uh, essentially, what, with smart water, what you can do now is that if an object shows up and it has been sprayed with this uh, smart water stuff, it's actually invisible. You can't see it with the naked eye. But if you shine a, a, an ultraviolet light on it, an ultraviolet beam, it will light up like literally like a Christmas tree. And if you were able to see that, it would just go, it would just go this glowy green. And yet, once you switch off the light, it's clear. And if you spray items or bark items, essentially, from the Middle East, uh, then we can prove that, most importantly, they came from a specific place and that they were looted uh, rather recently as opposed to as perhaps any fake paperwork or otherwise the seller or, or, or the uh, dealers are claiming. And this is a huge advance in our ability to protect um, cultural heritage in these parts of the world where it is under threat. And we anticipate that once this material becomes more commonly used and it spreads out, then it will be a, a part of the standard practice. And perhaps even uh, they might consider starting to mark legitimate items. Dealers and collectors and owners might even want to consider marking legitimately owned items here. And they, that would have a special signature that would denote that this is a legitimate item. So that if in the future it is sold or traded or passed down, people will know that they're getting a legal object and not something where money may have you know, transferred hands and ended up in the hands of terrorists. Uh, Amr Al-Azam, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and expertise about this. Associate Professor of Middle East History at Shawnee State University in Ohio and the former Director of Scientific and Conservation Laboratories at the Department of Antiquities and Museums in Syria. Uh, we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back. Layla is going to stay with us. We're going to introduce you to a new guest. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the subject of repatriation, about artifacts safety, and about the role of these civil conflicts in the antiquity world. So stay tuned. Dreams of antiquity, stop like consistency, black and white, photograph, Times Square, 're back uh, we're talking about uh, antiquities and what happens to them uh, still with us is Leila Amina delay an art and cultural heritage attorney and professor of art and cultural heritage law at Fordham University professor of Art Crime Law at NYU. Uh, joining me in studio is Stefan Simon, director of the Global Cultural Heritage Initiative. Uh, he was the inaugural director of the Institute for the Preservation of Cultural Heritage. So um, I guess, Stefan, uh, since you're new to this conversation, I want to begin by getting your perspective. How, how much is of a difference in this problem uh, has the current level of conflict in the Middle East uh, made? In other words, how much has it worsened as a result of destabilization in Iraq, in, uh, in Syria, in Libya? Let me first add that I'm at Yale University, oh. you know, Cultural Heritage Initiatives at Yale. Oh, I wouldn't want to leave that. <laughs> here in New Haven. But I would say the attention to this issue of looting and illicit traffic has grown considerably. 
uh, through what happens in in the Middle East. Uh, in essence, we have something which happens all over the world. It happens in Africa, in in South America, in in Asia. Um, looting and illicit traffic is something which you know at least since 46 years since the UNESCO Convention of 1970, the international community wants to address, but honestly has um, failed. And um, we actually see, uh, you know, now looting going on on, on a semi-industrial scale in the Middle East. And maybe the awareness, yes, through the conflict, uh, through the media has, has increased over the past years. So, I mean, what's happening here is multi-purpose, right? I mean, you have, on the one hand, ISIS and other kinds of organizations financing their operations by looting and selling these antiquities. But it seems to be also, and if we'd had more time uh, in the previous segment, I, I would have asked Amr about this too. There's an attempt to destroy national identity, I assume, a national and cultural identity. If you want to impose the notion of the caliphate, then you you don't care about Syrian artifacts or Iraqi artifacts. It actually is to your advantage if all that stuff kind of goes away, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of the destruction of the other is is also not uh, something really new. And I I would be, you know, reluctant to focus too much on ISIS in, the, in that because, you know, ISIS is one player in the game and we should have no doubts right. that the moment ISIS is left... Um, Somebody else will step in. Um, if you if you look back to the conflict in Bosnia in the 1990s, the destruction of cultural heritage of the other, uh, of the opponent. If you look back to the 19 you know 30s um, in Germany, Nazi Germany, you, you you see that cultural heritage is at the root of human identity, and the destruction of of the other goes actually through destroying the other's cultural heritage. So. In, in light of all that, Leila, I mean, one argument that can be made, I think I know how everybody on this show feels about it, but one argument that can be made is that some of our understandable concern about prior um, sort of imperialistic looting or possessing or, or, or in one way or another getting a hold of antiquities from other parts of the world and relocate, relocating them in American or British museums. I mean, when the world is unsafe, you could make the argument that these are good places for some of these uh, antiquities uh, if, if they're going to be destroyed or looted or not well handled. And we should quickly say, too, that people who are looting things don't they're not curators. They don't take good care of the things that they're looting. Uh, sometimes also if they're about to be apprehended, they've been known to throw, you know, ex incredibly uh, rare Roman statues over the side of a boat. This happened in the 1990s in order to avoid detection or melt it down or something like that. So, I mean, is there an argument for, well, maybe some of this stuff is safer in a museum somewhere in the West? Someone like me, who often lies more on the side of nationalism, of returning objects to their country of origin, that is an argument that I sometimes struggle with. Uh, we don't want to see objects being destroyed. So I think there is an argument for stating that, well, we'd rather see them in a safe place. However, that being said, I think we have to be very careful about what a safe place is. I still don't think there's any role for private collectors to be going in and purchasing objects that were looted because private collectors are not researching objects, displaying them for the public. Uh, sometimes they're not capable of caring for the objects properly. I do think there may be a very limited role for museums to take in objects, uh, not long-term ownership, 
but perhaps to take an object on loan. And there was this, uh, a program that was passed by the AAMD, the Association of American Museum Directors, and back in, I think, late 2015 or early 2016, they put forth a program, uh, the Protocols for Safe Havens for Works of Cultural Significance from Countries in Crisis. And basically it allows museums to come in, take objects that are in danger of being destroyed, register them onto an object registry and keep those objects on loan. So title never passes to the museum. The museum can never own those objects, but they're safeguarding them until the objects can be returned safely. That opens a whole other can of worms. When can we return objects safely? When do museums feel like they should be returned? And I think those are problems that could come up you know, that will arise later on down the line when objects should be returned. But I think there there's a role for museums to keep objects safely. But I think it's also really a very slippery slope. Uh, where do we draw the line on where objects are unsafe, where they are safe? So it is a very tricky question, and I understand the concern about saving objects that are in danger of destruction. But I hate to see that being used as an excuse for collectors to purchase looted objects. Right. And not every object that's in a museum that could be possibly disputed or ultimately sent back to its place of origin is looted. I mean, they're acquired in all kinds of yeah. different ways. And, and so, Stefan, I mean, just to the very first phrase that Layla used about being sort of nationalistically oriented, is that your overarching philosophy, too, that all things being equal, the best thing that can happen to something that is sitting in some place other than its place of origin is for it to get back to its place of origin. Yeah, I, I think I can feel a lot with what Leila has has just laid out. I wouldn't call that actually a, a nationalistic um, approach, but I think it's it's very timely and maybe it helps a little bit looking in perspective to back to history. I, I, I want to give you one example, not going back to Titus, you know, when he, he like took everything from Jerusalem in the first century, <laughs> but to the to the Napoleon who came to Germany and took uh, the, the collections from Germany back to France. It was with this idea that, you know, there's uh, Dominique Vivant Denon, the, the, the chief curator of the Louvre, said, in all these drawings of the early 19th century, shown with glasses, with a microscope, he is the one who knows art. He's the one who understands it, and he's taking this art, whether it's the Quadriga of the Brandenburg Gate, whether it's the painting of the Fridericianum in Kassel, take it to the Louvre for the world to enjoy and learn from it. Um, that is kind of like only the person who understands it, who is the smart guy, can use that. And we still have that today, 200 years later, and the smart guys are here in the Western museums. And I think we are lacking, we are lacking at the table. In this discussion, we are lacking th those uh, representatives of the country of origin. I have never heard personally a call for a safe museum, a safe haven from Syria or from Iraq. I haven't heard that. I may be wrong, but you know, the moment there would become such a call, I think one should take it seriously. But if it just comes from the Western museums, it's not enough. Although, oh boy, there's so many ways. First of all, it's a great point that you make that the Louvre, to a certain degree, is a museum of conquest. I mean, they gave back a lot of this material to Germany did. very soon. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's also the it's also the case. I don't I don't know which of you, or maybe ultimately in the third segment, Lisa can say something about this. It's not unheard of for particularly now that there's I don't I hate to call it a vogue, but there's certainly since the 1980s much more of an awareness among museums that maybe some of this stuff should go back. Sometimes at the initiation of museums. There are conversations about getting stuff back. It's not unheard of, right, for the people at the locale to say, 
well, actually, we went to your museum. It looks like you could take care of it pretty well, maybe better than we could. I'm not this is this just talking about Syria and Libya, but like a lot of times you look the people look at a museum and say those human remains or that incredible statue, you do a good job with it. You can keep it, right? Definitely. And and there are examples where, where cultural heritage is preserved in collections, which has been extinguished uh, in the in the countries of origin, of course. But I would I would still say that you know actually the the situation didn't really or the, the the discussion didn't really develop much. If you go back like forty years, the University of Pennsylvania had this this request to call for a pedigree for everything which enters a collection. I think over the years, with also in this country with the AMD and others, we were about to weaken the standards, and um, that's I think for my I'm convinced that this one of the reasons why we are not very successful in even slowing down the process of looting and illicit traffic. We have now, again, I said this before, we have a situation which is worse than it has been 10 years ago. And we have to really think about how to, how to address this with all the United Nations Security Council's resolution, you know, with all the international activities. I think we should uh, do more emphasis. And Leila uh, rightly uh, pointed out, out that the you know, resources in law enforcement, that's a big issue. Belgium just closes its, its, its department. In Germany, it's just a few people. Restructurization in London uh, at, the, at the Scotland Yard. So I think that those are all arguments to make that we have to think why we are not addressing this issue. And, and of course, the, the, the aim to possess something, the collectors, you know, sometimes you know, called collectors are the real looters. Um, Collectors need to be made aware that what they do by purchasing antiquities from the Middle East is actually fueling crime and violence, not only ISIS. Also, this money is not going to be used for schools and kindergartens. And uh, I think that is an important point to make. And, and that's what we, we are working for. So uh, let's set the illicit uh, looting and the illicit activities aside for a second, Leila. And I, I want to ask you a little bit more about the overarching philosophy that things should go back to where they started out, which... It seems it makes sense to me, but I feel like I have to, you know, um, pretend anyway, or be this devil's advocate, or pretend I'm Tiffany Jenkins or one of the people who who, who sees this the other way. So the other argument would be that uh, that ultimately, if half the Elgin marbles are in the British Museum and half of them are in Athens, that's a good thing, and and that encyclopedic museums are good uh, as opposed to monocultural museums. That ultimately, you know, if you go to Egypt and the only and the museum only has Egypt. Egyptian stuff in it, that ultimately maybe is potentially boring and, and that we don't learn as much about each other if things aren't kind of put in different places. What's your reaction to that? Oh, so many reactions. Well, <laughs> I want to step back, just one step, and then I'll get to the Parthenon marbles in particular, because it is an issue I feel very strongly about. So when I said I'm more nationalistic, I think you have to look at the spectrum between this nationalism and this internationalism. And I don't think that all antiquities should be seen in their place of origin. I think cases are very fact-specific. I think we should look to see what objects, how they were acquired, if they were looted, if there, was, if there were laws in place to regulate those objects at the time they were taken. I mean, acquisition of antiquities, say, 200 years ago, is very different than it is today. And I think we have to look at those facts and look at things within the context of when they were taken. So I don't think all objects need to be returned. Um, and countries of origin do make this judgment. They do have a judgment call for certain objects. As you were saying, sometimes foreign countries don't fight back for the return of works. They think they're 
well-suited in a foreign museum. And I think it's up to a country to look at those facts to see when they should be fighting for the repatriation of works or whether the works really are are best suited in an encyclopedic museum in a foreign country. So there is a spectrum. So I'm not saying everything should be returned. I just want to go on the record as saying that because I do think there's a great benefit to some of these encyclopedic museums and having works available in one place to really show the timeline of art history and to, to share works with people around the world that may not be able to travel to a country of origin to see objects. Um, you bring up the Parthenon marbles, which is a topic I feel very strongly about and I strongly advocate for the return of those marbles, and that's partly because of the unique nature of those marbles and that they're part of an integrated whole on a building that's still standing in Athens. So for me, I think the objects should be returned. I think they should be back in Greece. Uh, I think it's wonderful to see those objects in Athens in the light of the Parthenon overviewing the Acropolis. I think it's a wonderful thing to see, and I would love to see the objects back. and I, I feel like some of the British Museum's arguments for retaining those marbles are not really justifiable in, in some ways. Uh, but I think it's really, I think these cases, especially cases that have been argued for so long, the discussion over the repatriation of the Parthenon marbles has been going on for at least 180 years. Byron Byron said it was not a good idea to keep these marbles. Yeah, so. <laughs> right when, when Greece had gained its, you know, its independence and became its own nation in the 1830s, that was one of the first things that the nation had done. They wanted to reclaim those marbles. So it's something that's been fought over for a very long time. And for me, I think that those marbles should be returned, even if it's not for, you know, based on a legal argument, I think morally they should be returned. However, I don't think all objects from museums should be returned to their country of origin. Okay, so this is, oh boy, we could have like a whole hour conversation and I can see Stefan is ready to go uh, too, but I, I got to get this third segment in here. So first of all, Layla, thanks so much. Layla Amina Delay, uh, art and cultural heritage attorney and professor of art and cultural heritage law at Fordham University, professor of art crime at NYU. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with more uh, of Stefan Simon and you'll get to meet uh, our final guest here as we talk about my favorite place in New Haven. This antiquity of a bygone age constantly haunts me since it came to stay. It came into my house as a gift from a friend. It refuses to leave now. In this story. Today's credits are printed on an ancient papyrus. Can I keep the papyrus? No, I really want it. Today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff with help from Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is a mummy and it's been returned to Egypt. Part of Bill Curry was played by Harrison Ford. On Friday, The Nose is live from New Haven with a conversation about the big sick. That's a movie. And now. Back to Colin. So uh, here in our third and final segment, Lisa Brody, Associate Curator of Ancient Art at Yale University Art Gallery and creator of the Dura Europus exhibit. Uh, also uh, with us in studio is Stefan Simon, Director of the Global Cultural Heritage Initiative uh, at Yale University and Principal Investigator of Project Anka. Is that how you say that? Okay. So um, 
Lisa Brody, I love this room at the Yale Art Gallery. I go there like as much as I possibly can, but I probably don't even completely understand what it is that I'm seeing there. Maybe you could say, what is Dora? What is this uh, exhibit? So um, Dora Europas is an archaeological site, an ancient city in what is today Syria on the banks of the Euphrates. Um, and Yale University was involved in a 10-year excavation campaign in the 1920s and 1930s. It was a collaborative project together with the French, um, the French Academy of Inscriptions and Letters. So at the beginning of that campaign, an agreement was reached as far as the distribution of the fines from each season. At that time, Syria was under French mandate. So we actually have in our excavation archives a copy of the agreement, which is known as a partage, sharing of fines. Um, and it was decided that half of that the fines would be equally split. So half of the fines from each season would go to Yale, and the other half would um, would actually remain in Damascus as the French share. Um, so we have at the Yale University Art Gallery um, a collection that numbers about twelve thousand objects, um, artifacts, and works of art, um, as well as the excavation archives. Um, photographs, drawings, field notebooks, artifact registry from those seasons. So it's an incredibly important resource. Um, the artifacts themselves have been in the collection of the gallery um, since they were discovered in the 20s and 30s, and many of them have been on view ever since, um, for the most part. But th this room now, it's, it's, that's a newer thing. Yeah. And, and let me just say that there's, for me, there's a thrilling sense of being sitting at an ancient crossroads, yeah. essentially, that you, you have Jewish culture, you have early Christian culture, you have Mithra worshipers, who exactly. I think were your Palmyran archers. Yeah, I mean, really, the, there's this standing in that room, I really do feel like I'm at this really interesting historical fulcrum. Yes. So that um, room, which opened in 2012, is the first time that Dura has gotten um, a dedicated gallery in the mm -hmm. museum, uh, which is really exciting. And that's exactly what you uh, what you express is exactly what I hoped people would get out of it, the feeling of being in an ancient city. Um, and what is important about Dura historically is this multiculturalism. Um, Dura was not a particularly important city in antiquity. It wasn't Palmyra. Um, but it is the preservation of the remains, which are extraordinary, and the systematic excavation of them and the preservation of them ever since that allows us um, to see what was going on in the ancient city much more easily and more completely than we can with many other ancient sites. So we, what we see, this garrison town, military town, um, on the border of empires, mm -hmm. so it's on the edge of the Greek and the Parthian and then the Roman and then the Sasanian empires, and it went back and forth um, over the course of its history among these different powers. Um, but it was always a frontier town. And so these frontiers were permeable borders. They weren't, they didn't have walls. <laughs> mm. um, so we get, and what we see archaeologically is a very multicultural site. So um, artistic forms, languages, occupations, and then religions, which is what people get really excited about. The fact that we can see archaeologically that within a few years, we have the very earliest securely datable church, um, one of the earliest and best preserved 
very elaborate synagogues, um, and actually about a dozen pagan temples that are themselves a mixture of Greco-Roman and Near Eastern divinities, one of these being Mithras. So we get this really exciting mystery religion. Right. And so, Stefan, one day I was in there and um, there was uh, one of the people in the blue blazers. I don't know, they're security guards, security whatever you guards. call them. So, security guard, young Latina woman uh, from this community. I, she might be from Hampton or New Haven. I don't know. We, he, she and I fell into a long conversation about this. So, she works at the museum. This is also the first museum she ever visited in her life. Th- that's her experience. That's her entry point. And I thought, this is so thrilling, you know, that this is her experience and look what she's looking at. And she clearly understands what kind of room she's in, too. So, to me, that's the argument for some antiquities coming to other places. I I don't know. How does that sit with you? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, similar as Leila has said it before, I also don't think that, you know, there's a natural right for antiquities to return to their place of origin, especially since borders kind of shifted over the past 2,000 years, right? You don't really Mm -hmm. know where this border was. Um, I also would say that museums are a wonderful place where objects can be activated, can can become an active role as a as a, even like an ambassador for for culture for a time period. Uh, definitely, um, I only want to to make one comment of this. You know, like really iconic objects, these big ones. Uh, we shouldn't underestimate the memory of nations. It, it goes very very long time. The, the Napoleon I already mentioned. You 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 have examples like that from from China. You know, the, 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 the looting of the Summer Palace in Beijing 1860 after the Opium War by the French, by the British, is a story which every child knows, where Jackie Chan now makes successfully a film about it, right? Chinese Zodiac 12. Um, this memory is not going to go back. It doesn't go back for Nefertiti in Berlin. It doesn't go back for the wedding at Cana, Veronese painting which Napoleon took in 1797. It's now more than 200 years ago. So I think these iconic objects... Um, there will be a, a desire to at least be part of the discussion of how to preserve mm-hmm. it. And, and when Lisa mentions the, the synagogue, I have been actually seeing the synagogue paintings in the Damascus Museum a few months ago. And um, I was really uh, impressed by the security measures, by the conservation, which is done by the colleagues of mm-hmm. the, uh, the Syrian colleagues of the Department of Antiquities. And I think... Um, Objects need to be reactivated, need to be studied together. Then actually the place where they eventually reside becomes probably a secondary issue. I think the most important is the knowledge. Is everybody in the world pretty happy with the way these things are in New Haven? I mean, there's nobody asking for them to go anywhere else, right? Um, No, that was um, something that resonated what you said. Not every country asks for things back. Mm -hmm. And people ask me that all the time. Um, Has Syria ever come to the gallery and and requested that the objects be taken back. And no, the answer is no. Um, Whether it's because they're very happy, they have the synagogue paintings and, you know, thousands of other objects and they don't want more or, you know, obviously now they've got other, the country has other things to worry about. Um, As far as is everyone happy, you know, I've gotten, we as a museum have gotten very Um, strong positive feedback on this. We're free and open to the public, so Mm. people come in all the time, um, see a room here, a room there, and it's been great. Um, You know, there are always people who want something different highlighted or or some slightly different display. So well, the other part of this to me is that the other thing that moves around are people. 
Um, so, you know, it, it might have made sense for a museum in the United Kingdom to have like mostly Turners and stuff like that. But there's a lot of South Asian people in in Britain right now. So, I mean, the notion anyway that that everybody who's Syrian stayed in yeah. Syria and is well, you, you can pick, pick that up and run with it. Well, just on that. Um, along those lines, I'll never forget, I was in graduate school in New York City, and I was in the Met one day, and I saw um, a, a school group from Astoria, Queens, so primarily Greek and Greek-American kids, um, and they were, I could overhear them as I was wandering around saying, you know, this is my heritage, you know, and they were amazed, and they hadn't, maybe some of them had never been to Greece themselves, they were first or second generation, but um, so, you know, there is definitely, as, as, the conversation has been going um, up to now. It's a complicated issue, this one of encyclopedic museums, and uh, looting makes it more complicated. And most museums, certainly including the gallery, would not touch anything now um, that has any suspicion of having been looted because it does fuel the fire. It does you know, encourage this. Um, I'll also say that the issue of looting in Syria um, you mentioned the complication with ISIS, and there's the desecration of cultural history and also looting to, to fund their activities. There's also looting by other individuals in, in Syria, and that seems to be where the destruction of Dari Ropas um, is happening, that local people trying to feed their families. Um, and so there are a lot of different levels. We're back, yeah, we're back a little bit to supply and demand, too, which was yeah. where we started out. All right, so Lisa Brody, Associate Curator of Ancient Art at the University uh, Yale University Art Gallery and Curator of the Dura Europas exhibit. If you haven't been to this and you live anywhere near where I'm sitting right now, well, yeah, I mean, just leave where you are right now and go. It really is an amazing place. <laughs> Don't all go at once, though. That would make a, a bad situation. All right, thank you so much. I've got a few minutes left with uh, Stefan Simon, uh, director of the Global Cultural Heritage Initiative at Yale University, principal investigator of Project Anka, which we're going to tell you about in just a second. I want to come back to these iconic objects because, okay, so I'll I'll switch sides here. I mean, one, one way for Americans to understand something like this is imagine one of our foundational documents you know, the, like the only copy of the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence was in Hamburg or Lagos, Nigeria or something like that. And and then some radio host like me was saying, well, that's pretty good because people in Lagos can find out all about American democracy. That's pretty good. I'm guessing that's not going to wash that well, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's a very, very nice example, which we often forget to look at if we forget the perspective of the other eye of the other side. That's exactly what, what the Chinese students feel when they see, you know, the, the looted objects from the Summer Palace. That's what my friends in Tanzania see when they see all these dinosaur borns in Berlin in the National History Museum, which come from, from there, right? And they say, what, what do our children actually learn from these huge dinosaurs? And so it, it comes down to the question of access and it comes down to the question of how to share this access and who is actually putting up the rules. And, and I think what we need to do is, is, is to make this more in a better equilibrium and to just not forget the other perspective because, yeah, I, I, I can totally understand. It's all, 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 the same is for Germany too. You know, mm -hmm. the, 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 I, I always mention this example of the Gutenberg Bible, the, the only one remaining which is then in the National Archive in Lagos in Nigeria. How would I feel about that? So, I, yeah. <laughs> all right. So uh, we have a little uh, few minutes left. We should talk about Project Anka. Explain this to people. 
Well, Anka um, is, you know, comes from the Arabic word of, of Phoenix, and uh, it has been, you know, with all this destruction in the Middle East, especially in Syria, uh, in the past years, we, we, we thought we should do um, a project, which is a collaboration with ECOMOS. This is an advisory body to the World Heritage Convention, an international organization, an NGO in Oakland, California called SciArc, you know, high-tech People can do all the digital stuff and the Department of Antiquities in Syria, the DGM, to document endangered cultural heritage in the country, but also to build the capacity among the next generation of those who will be in charge of this heritage. And, and, and you know, it's not so easy. I have taken quite some heat for traveling to Syria and, and, and discussing with my colleagues. But, but honestly, you know, this is a country that this Department of Antiquities, many people have heard about Khalid al-Assad, who was decapitated in 2015 August by, by ISIS. More than 10 people died in the line of duty. I feel, as for, first and foremost, I feel our responsibility to support those people who defend cultural heritage. Uh, on the ground um, to really support them in that, training them, uh, helping to document it, make this documentation accessible. And um, I have heard all but, but uh, you know, uh, support from, from my colleagues in the Arab countries about that because uh, as somebody working for the preservation of cultural heritage for 30 years, I just can't close my eyes um, to what, what is actually happening in in this country, you know, and, and, and in the region as a whole. So I, I just want to make this this uh, plea to say, well, you know, we need to support, we need to be generous, we need to be creative in our support for our colleagues on the ground, also in countries like Syria, uh, because, uh, you know, we share, you know, we have world heritage there, right, like Palmyra mm -hmm. and others. So share, sh shared uh, heritage also means shared responsibility. So we need to support them. And, and they do a great work. They actually have been quite successful in rescuing a lot of their artifacts uh, during the war. Um, I would say remarkably successful uh, in, in, in protecting their museums, including the famous, you know, uh, mural paintings from the Dura Europa Synagogue in Damascus. All right. We're going to stop it there. A special thanks to our uh, intern, uh, Carmen Baskoff, who is the person who put this whole show together, conceived of it in the first place. It's been fascinating to me. Hope it does to you, too. And thanks uh, also to all of our wonderful guests. We'll be back tomorrow. Listening in 300 years, what we consider antiquity. Doing songs, whether written a song. Hearts pumping, blood's flowing, so I'll never be done. Many others six feet under, but still alive in this century. Music stays living, even if it's antiquity. Doing songs, whether written a song. Hearts pumping, blood's flowing, so I'll never be done. Many others six feet under, but still alive in this century. Music stays living, even if it's antiquity.